We're live. Hey, we're live. John Reed with Michael Doan of MichaelDoan.com. What do you think, Mike? The whiteboard. Saw you, man. Uh, I love being on the whiteboard. <laughs> yeah, well, this is going to be a treat for our viewers and listeners because we're going to, Michael and I are really going to dig into the uncomfortable topic of enterprise project failure, but with a, with a constructive twist, we're going to look at some of the key ingredients that you might not have heard about that, that customers really need to pay attention to especially the role of independence and the impact of that, but also uh, maybe some business uh, process excellence themes that Michael Doan has been stumping. Uh, I don't know if i call you a business process evangelist, but uh, you're definitely a little skeptical of the IT uh, angle as far as an IT-centric approach to this stuff. I know that. Absolutely. I don't mind being called a business process evangelist uh, so that the audience understands that I'm not down on the IT. But uh, as my most recent blog post says, uh, I don't believe the platform is more important than the application. I think it's what we get out of it that matters rather than how we do it. So, Michael, when, uh, when you and I first met, we were a lot younger. <laughs> a good, yeah, a good uh, 18 years, John. I'd like to think we're wiser now. I'm not sure. Uh, but the one thing I do know is that enterprise projects continue to either fail or have the kind of massive cost overruns and user dissatisfaction levels that they might as well be, you know, failures in the end. This is a pretty stark reality and it hits the press all the time. Um, why is this Why is this happening? I mean, I understand like in the 90s it was obvious because we had a real, you know, lack of uh, skilled consultants and there was such a buying frenzy. But, but now, why are we continuing to be plagued by these project problems? I've been tracking this, as you know, since I met you at the very onset of my SAP career in late 1995. And back then, John, we, you and I and others shared a view that all of this would, would, would work out through time. Back in 95, we didn't even have a methodology. The various systems integrators, it was still the big eight at that time, they were each using methodologies that didn't apply properly to enterprise applications, integrated enterprise applications. They were using the old 80s version of design, build, run uh, with, you remember, the as-is phase, which uh, I referred to back then as the consulting partner's retirement fund phase. <laughs> yeah. And in 97, we had a ray of hope. SAP came out itself with the first version of the ASAP methodology. And this is going to be a key point as, as we move towards the subject of, of the judicious use of independent consultants because before ASAP came out with every different systems integrator using a different method to try to skin the, the enterprise applications cat, it was Babel. I actually started on a project here in Atlanta, Georgia at what I refer to as the laboratory of SAP failure. I won't name the firm, but they had seven different systems integrators at a time in their building, all working on the same project using different methodologies. That was quite a mess. Now, with the ASAP methodology, by hook or by crook, all systems integrators adhere to at least the core of ASAP. So you can now, you know, for, for years now, it's been you've been able to bring in people in the middle of a project, or from bringing an independent to augment a systems integration team alike, and they're all working from the same page, ASAP. That's that's very very that that has been a boon, but has it reduced 
the problems of systems integration? Has it enhanced the success? Yes, to some degree, but has it solved the problem? Absolutely not. Yeah, which brings us to, I think, our broader point, and I think you've made a really uh, good way of setting this up that, and it's not even, by the way, just SAP. I think, in general, the systems integrators have evolved with their methodologies for implementing whatever kind of enterprise software you look at. There's just a lot more sophistication, and yet these problems still remain. I mean, Chris Kanarakis uh, basically can spend a third of his time reporting on uh, these kinds of project woes. Uh, but there are some, uh, I think, un still underestimated and, and underreported ways of, of having a better outcome. And uh, in independent uh, views on projects to me is a really big part of it. And it, it fits into this broader issue of customers taking more ownership and control over projects and putting, I would say, less faith in, in one uh, systems integrator. This is not a bash the systems integrator festival we're having today, but I will tell you, and I, I know you've looked at some of these documents more closely than even I have, but when I read about these failures, one of the things I see so often is it almost seems like a, I don't want to say a blind faith, but an excessive level of trust, in my opinion, in one systems integrator where the relationship could have used a lot of gut checks along the way. Uh, to your point, you, could, you have a, an absolutely credible sliding scale of success or failure along the axis of client ownership. Uh, you have a lot of clients that at the, the worst, they acquire the SAP software and they believe that they're acquiring the implementation by, as we say, leaving it to the experts. So they'll go out and get a systems integrator and the systems integrator will tend to do like they're supposed to and really conjure uh, a, a collaboration, but a lot of the clients just give them the cold shoulder uh, don't show up at the steering committee meetings or come along and pay no mind. And you know, John, as you know, I've, I've been an expert witness already five times uh, since the year 2000. Um, it seems like a lot, but you know, it's probably taken up altogether uh, three or four percent of my time. But I find it very, very instructive. And I've I've defended you know both sides in the equation: systems integrators and and uh, clients. And in what's 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 the common characteristic of all of these lawsuits? The relationship, the you know, the personal relationship, the the lack of of, uh, of client commitment and or um, a lack of of true partnership on the part of the systems integrators who never fail <laughs> when they're pitching their services to open up any conversation with we would like to partner with you. Right. And a little gem to clients out there. When you hear that, ask the partner from the systems integration firm to characterize what he or she means by partnership. If they're able to articulate it, you want to listen to them some more. If they can't articulate it, then you know that partnership to them means they're going to bill you <laughs> and you're going to pay, right? Yeah. But yeah, to your point, John, client ownership is absolutely huge. And if I may hold the mic just one more moment to kind of get a peer out deeper into the lake uh, so that the audience understands I haven't been just doing SAP consulting since 95. I took six years out, 2001 through 2007, six plus years actually, to work as an industry analyst and researcher into this industry and was able to get quite a bit of primary research and the like and spend a lot of time helping clients choose their systems integrators 
as opposed to being a systems integrator selling my services. And what I observed through primary research and a lot of experience is that when clients are engaging a systems integrator, what they absolutely want is, number one, methodology. Clients don't have methodology. Number two, the technical acumen around the technology. Systems configuration, database work, and the like. They also want experience. It's, they don't want just someone who's trained technically and has a methodology to walk in cold, as you, a former <laughs> recruiter, understand. Yep. They want experience. They want a sense of collaboration, and they want a willingness to provide knowledge transfer. And like I said, we all have a ASAP, so at least people are coming to the table with a common language. But too often, clients insist on all of that, but don't listen to the other end of what the systems integrator is saying is, You've got to be there. You've got to learn yourselves. You have to take the knowledge transfer actively and collaborate. Now, along those lines, uh, in addition to the time you spent studying the industry, I know that since that time you you developed a number of KPIs and scorecards and actual sort of self-assessment methods that enterprise customers can use to take a look at where their strengths are and where their weaknesses are pertaining to projects and get kind of instead of just, I guess you could say, talking smack around ownership, you've actually created a system for assessing some of these variables from a number of angles, including uh, business process excellence. Tell us a little bit about uh, how customers can look at some of the factors. What are some of the factors they can assess? Well, I'll focus, John, thank you for that. I'll focus on the maturity assessment that I've done the most often. I do a number of assessments, readiness assessments, maturity assessments, and Going into a client that's already had SCP or Oracle or, or whatever enterprise applications for, for anywhere from a year to 12 years, um, I give them a self-assessment where they will put together 60 people or so with roughly half being on the technical side, another half being uh, more of the client stakeholders. And I give them 40 best practice statements with accompanying definitions of them and say, Tell us on a scale of 1 to 10, are you adhering to this? Right? And that's all they've got to do. It takes these people 15 minutes to do it. And it's, it's a double blind. It's all anonymous. Uh, we don't know what scores were. We throw out outliers, you know, the folks that say, oh, it's all terrible here, so it's all ones. <laughs> or, or Mr. Sunnyside Up, where it's all nines and tens. We, we throw those out. But we get an unsullied, highly credible diagnostic of where they stand. Now, to answer your question, John, we go across five levels of maturity from we just got done implementing to we're world class. Uh, uh, the second level is stable. And many, many firms in the, in the long run, they get to stability and kind of stop. And as I tell them, you're doing a great job of standing still. <laughs> right. right? Great jobs. Sometimes, and admittedly, sometimes just still standing with this complex integrated software is in and of itself an accomplishment, but they don't move ahead. But we also test them across four areas of activity, and so all, all very important. Obvious one, the state of the software. Another one, the state of the end users. How, how, how competent are they and how supported are they to make this software really function? Third, their ability to measure business benefit. And, and finally, their business and IT dynamic. How well does the business and IT sides work together? And I will tell you, John, after 
numerous of these, here's the result. And clients, listen up, because this will probably be you if you've had your uh, enterprise applications for five or more years. Entropy sets in. So on our scale of one to ten, five is neither nor. We're, we're not good, we're not bad. Six is kind of, yeah, we're okay, right? Yeah. By the time you get to seven, you're getting good, etc. If you're below five, you're really substandard. So on average, the state of the end users, John, is 5.5. They're not even meh, right? The ability to measure is 5.3. The business and IT dynamic is 5.8, which is like writing, well, we're not killing each other, but we don't have lunch together, right? The state of the applications is 7.3. And the clients say, hey, the applications are working. Well, maybe in theory, but with those other elements being so weak, no, the applications aren't working. And that's where there's been a lot of disappointment out there. Mm. Uh, because clients concentrate over much on the applications and not enough on the other issues around them. Voila. Yeah, and I'm a big fan of if you want to change outcomes for the better, you have to start with a, a rigorous and unflinching self-assessment or project assessment. But the only downside I, I see to doing that is sometimes it's a little tough. Uh, like sometimes when you take a look at those results, you're like, wow, we really don't score well in these areas. And I think the risk you run at that point is almost a sort of paralysis of feeling overwhelmed by, by the stark reality of things. So how do you take that and, and, and move people forward as far as, okay, here's some steps we can actually take to turn this around? Well, happily, there, there are clients, as I'm discussing whether or not they're going to want to do this, they get more and more, at first they go, oh, that sounds great. But then they say, but what are you going to be testing? And I talk them through. And I explain to all of them that we're going to get a very clear diagnostic, but we have remedies for every one of these areas. Mm -hmm. For example, client, I do one, they're, they're in, the state of their end users is terrible. And they say, so I have to retrain everybody? No, not necessarily. Let's create, and you're quite aware of how, what I've done with this, a super user network by which we nominate super users who help the other users uh, part and parcel in their job and you get a, you get a community you get your social networking and everything else and I hook her by crook after a number of months the users are happier because they're getting support they're more efficient the company's more efficient etc cetera, etc cetera. so my point being is they can get down in the mouth of we're not as good oh and we've got all this to do or they can say it is what it is. Let's get back to the drawing board. But John, I got to tell you, I've had—I won't name the firms—but I've had a number of firms that really needed this assessment. In some cases, I've been brought in for free by their software suppliers. Yeah. Say, Michael will do this assessment for you, and when they hear what it entails, they're thinking to—I can tell—I can hear them thinking to themselves. We're going to come out really, really crappy on this. And yeah, I, yeah, yeah. I don't want the other people at sea level to know. Yep. So they come up with bogus excuses for not doing it. And yeah. the fact of the matter is, you you can imagine, therefore, how those people got into the situation they're already in. <laughs> right? Yeah. It's like, it's like, John, you and I have seen this before with clients where you say, look, for your key performance indicators, you've got to organize as you're implementing your SAP or your Oracle, 
what's the current state in numbers so that after you go live, we can say, here's what you got for the investment. And a lot of them say, oh, we know it's going to be better, so why would we bother? And to them, I say, because you'll get fired when somebody says, what'd you do with the 50 million? What'd we get for it? And you're just going to say things are better. But my, the funniest, there are many more. The funniest is the ones who say, we don't want to know. <laughs> yeah. Right? Yeah. We just don't want to know. Well, and, and Michael, I think on some of these projects, you're actually past the point where you can salvage them without having some difficult moments. Uh, to, to me, it's it's the question would be, would you rather have some difficult meetings with management or six months from now, would you rather lose your job or a year from now, would you like to lose your career when, when the project goes up in flames and, and you're part of those headlines? Right. And let's come back to sort of the timeline and where we're at in successful or unsuccessful projects. You know, the, every project has multiple historians. Um, you've got... Uh, in, in the few years, you remember, I had a company called Performance Monitor where we did a lot of deep, deep uh, uh, polling of clients in the install base. Uh, we did all together for SAP, Oracle, and PeopleSoft, we did all together in the neighborhood of 5,000 projects. And we had input from project managers, project sponsors, uh, organizational change management people, et cetera, et cetera. And you know who always scored the highest for their projects? The sponsors. <laughs> right? Wow, what a surprise. Well, my project was a success. We did this, we did that. And who scored them the worst? The business stakeholders. Yeah. So, and sometimes the same project, right? And we've seen a lot of that. Well, let's talk about, before we dig into independence, let's talk about one other criteria, which is business outcomes, because it, it seems to me that the trend in enterprise applications is more and more control being asserted by business users and owners over how software is purchased and implemented, which in general I think is good news. But it does then come down to what business outcomes are we getting out. So what happens if you're in the middle of a long-term project and you score really badly on, on business outcome? You can rationalize it in terms of simplifying your IT landscape or what have you, but that's just not going to carry the day anymore. So how do you deal with that? Um, I wish I could say I've successfully dealt with it across the board, but in point of fact, we're already behind the eight ball in terms of business outcomes by virtue of the way clients go about acquiring their software and then their services. They do it backwards. They go about making a choice, if you like, between Oracle and SAP or between, if they're in the mid-market, you know, you can add Microsoft to the mix and others. Um, and they, they choose their software and they even license their software and then go out with an RFP for their services. And it's human nature, it's the way sales go. Let me tell you what salespeople tell clients as they're licensing. And the client comes along and says, well, Okay, but what about our services? Oh, don't worry about the services. You know, it's ASAP, just add water. And then services people come along and clients have sticker shock. They kind of thought that it would be an equal cost for the license and an equal cost, you know, for the services. And in point of fact, coming from multiple layers of research, we find that the services cost comes to at least double the license cost. So, yeah, you hear about projects still where it's one to five or one to seven uh, 
that highly weighted. I, I think it's getting better, but it, the ratios are still pretty unpleasant, especially for on-premise. I think some of the cloud companies have been able to reduce that, but one, one to five or something is just demoralizing from an investment standpoint. But you know, John, it's the, it's, the, it's the ones that resist the most, the clients that resist the most having a rational budget. Yeah. It goes all the worse because they're trying to save money, so they're running, 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 running. They're cutting corners and everything else, and inevitably they can't go live because of their corners cutting, so they throw more money into it, but they still haven't learned their lesson, so they throw more money into it. Those one to sevens and, and beyond, those are the clients that tried to make it one-to-one. -one. Right. Um, but we another, by the way, rule of thumb, clients out there, if you're budgeting, this happened to be uh, one of those, we, we got a rule of thumb out of it. Take 1% of your revenues as the absolute minimum that you're going to invest into an enterprise-wide software implementation project. If you want to succeed, make it two. <laughs> yeah. Or as close to 2% as possible. Um, I've had I've had people screaming at me, as you know. I, I love that. Uh, you can't be serious, Mr. Doan. We're not going to spend that. And yes, they are. Um, but because they try to cut it down, already you've got a project. The day it starts, it's already late and over budget. Yep. The second tine in the three-tine pitchfork is the notion that going live means you know on time and on budget is successful. Right. Coming back to your, your question around business outcomes, and the other the other horrible performance indicator or, or stat that for some reason the software providers love total cost of ownership. What does that mean? Would, huh? Yeah. Total cost of ownership is the pier that leads you to the middle of the lake, and you jump in the lake and drown. Because it doesn't include the other side, which is what benefit did you get out of it? Hmm? Yep. One one of the more amusing moments when I was being deposed once by an attorney, the attorney made the mistake of reading my books and thinking he knew something about SAP. So he said to me, Mr. Doan, wouldn't you agree that a project that's completed on time and on budget is by definition a success? And I said, Absolutely not. I've seen a lot of projects and on time and on budget to no appreciable benefit to the client. It's it's comparable wow, that's, to that's blasphemy. Yeah. Uh, well, again, it is blasphemy. Uh, I I don't get invited to some dinners, as you know, John. <laughs> yeah. Well, sometimes you have to get some takeout on your own to keep your integrity. I think it's worth it. Yeah. Uh, I want to dig into the topic of independence now a bit. Um, and for those who don't know, I'm kind of doing an occasional ongoing series on this topic because there's there's not enough information in the public domain about the different roles independents can play. Uh, prior to this, I've already looked a bit at the role of independent advisors in vendor evaluation, which I think is a little more well-known. And I've also looked at it from a subject matter expert perspective with folks like SAP uh, consultant Jared Pazahonic about how to be effective as a subject matter expert as an independent. Uh, but there's another role that I that I like to see on projects that I don't often see, which is more of a higher level independent advisor who can either be on site all the time or come in periodically for for audits and, and gut checks uh, to make sure things have not gone too far off the rails. 
um, and are in, instead on track for a better outcome. So, Michael, I know you have played that kind of role before. I know you've talked about it in terms of almost like a QA component. Uh, how might that work, and, and have you seen that be effective? Plants are not smart in the way they choose or manage the systems integrators. It's, it's, it's distressing in that they're very smart buying their hardware. They, they can look at benchmarks and they get statistics and all of that, fine. They're pretty good at buying their software. When it comes to buying their services, it turns into witchcraft. Uh, and they'll, they'll get a systems integrator by hook or by crook, whatever the process they went through. And to your earlier point, they'll throw all of their confidence into that systems integrator and just let things go willy-nilly. Um, I found, even before I got into the world of SAP in 1995, I did quite a bit of quality assurance, where as an independent consultant, I would be brought in sometimes sort of when a project was going south, but quite often from the beginning. And again, at varying levels, sometimes it was very heavy quality assurance, often very light. But the main thing is for the systems integrator, to know that someone's watching, not like an auditor, um, but in quality assurance. And whenever I've gone on a site to do quality assurance, the service provider in question is hostile to me early on. Again, right. on the presumption that I'm going to be looking over their shoulders and doing yan 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 to the client. In point of fact, and they're almost always pleasantly relieved when in a given meeting we're going through things, and I will turn to the client and say, your systems integrator is right you shouldn't be cutting those corners, it's going to hurt you, right? When, when I can demonstrate that my role is to help them have the most successful outcomes possible, and that cuts both ways. I know that sins can be committed on either side. And so what I say to clients and I, is you're going to spend millions of dollars in many cases, millions upon millions of dollars on this project. You're going to try to cut corners. We understand keeping your costs down you will almost naturally cut corners on your end-user training. Clients do this religiously yeah. and to their great regret later because they've built a Maserati and then put a seven-year-old untrained child in it to drive it. <laughs> <laughs> right? right. Um, so uh, the quality assurance thing, if you're looking again at you know a multi-million dollar project or even less, invest 1% or even half percent in someone who's been down that road many times, has good insight into the client issues, but also excellent insight into systems integrator issues, and get a third-party, non-biased review at the various key milestones of your project. You won't regret it. Yeah, to me that seems like a no-brainer. There are a few objections that get raised by folks. I've noticed a lot of times the objections are raised by those with entrenched interests in the current <laughs> system. Uh, but but the things that come up a lot are, well, um, that adds a whole nother level of politics to to a, a project. And it, it does seem like it to an extent it does make for, you know, more challenging meeting scenarios when you have another point of view to incorporate. But in my mind, it's much better to have a more complex, difficult conversation that keeps the product on track than, than handshakes and smiles and, and hitting the golf course uh, while things go downhill behind the scenes, right? So Right, well, exactly. And the idea, again, of getting a, a third party, especially an independent, coming back to our theme, is you don't have anything else to sell. Yeah. You know, when I, when I was an analyst at Metagroup and I, I was covering services, 
um, I would I would laugh purposefully every time some partner at, at any of them, IBM, Deloitte, Accenture, would say to me, you know, the old saw, Michael, we are our clients' trusted advisors. And I would laugh and say, no, no, no. You always have more to sell, and the client knows it. And they'd, they're not going to have the kind of trust in you that they have in me, because I have nothing more to sell. They've already bought me. That's it, and that's all I've got in my kit bag. I'm not a systems integrator. I don't have a raft of consultants on the bench. None of that. And in similar fashion, same thing with a quality assurance person. You know, you don't want, if you've hired Deloitte as your systems integrator, you don't want a quality assurance person from Accenture coming in. That That's not going to work. Right. That Accenture quality assurance person does have an agenda or, or may well have an agenda. An independent person doesn't. Hey, Mike, I think there's a little paper rustling on your desk there. You're going to have to take whatever is in your your hands and wad it up, toss it away for the purity of our audio recording. <laughs> hey, um, I wanted to ask you about the this whole issue of the other thing about independence on the other side is you hear independents say sometimes, well, I wanted to have input but I really wasn't politically empowered to do so. So obviously that's an important piece of the puzzle as well, right? If you're going to bring someone in you do have to make it clear from the get-go that you value their perspective on these issues, and that's why they're around, right? I would hope so. Uh, you don't. You don't want. You don't want window dressing. And coming back to the question about politics, once again, uh, when we see two sides, client and vendor, uh, natural tensions arise. So you, the the quality assurance person, often serves much as an arb an arbiter. Um, for example, and, and here's, a, here's a common one that you'll, you'll know well. In the course of the project, the sometimes very long projects, uh, the systems integrator sees something and says, ah, and comes to the client and says, we've just noticed that there's an opportunity that if you add this scope, you can get this much more benefit. And the client doesn't know things all that well. They're, they learn as they're going, but they may not really know, is this a good idea, is this a bad idea, are they pulling the wool over my eyes? Your quality assurance person can say, actually, uh, that would be quite valuable, and you should give it strong consideration, or say, I don't really see the value, make them demonstrate it to you all the more, something like that. That's one of the more common issues when you're doing quality assurance. Yeah, it sounds to me like you would have to make a pretty savvy hire to higher in, in the role that we're talking about now, you would have need someone with enough sort of gravitas and ability to uh, be a diplomat with different viewpoints, right? Because uh, if, if that person were to side aggressively with the SI or the customer, it, it could really set things awry, I think. Uh, well, siding aggressively, no. You, you're much more of the expert who provides the point of view, not, not particularly taking a side, Right. An opinion. And, and so there, that's where the style comes in. Like I say, yeah. if, if a quality assurance person comes on as aggressive, they will be viewed as a, 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 I want to say an advocate. And you should not be a, an advocate. You should be a filter. And a, right? Just a filter. I want to add one other ingredient to this discussion around uh, this broader theme of customer ownership. 
because I think we've covered the independent piece pretty well here. Um, the other thing I'm a huge advocate for that I don't think has been quantified nearly enough is the value of user group involvement. Uh, I can give you kind of two polar opposite sort of anecdotes. One is uh, reading blog posts. The best ever was when SAP, the, the guy named SAP Me Sideways was blogging about his project, and it was a disaster project in a lot of levels, right? And he uh, he would talk about his uh, consulting firm that was in the project, and they, they seemed to pretty much suck. Um, but the other thing that I was really struck by was how isolated he seemed to be, anonymous he, as it were, <laughs> could have been a she, I guess, from, from user groups, and in general, it was a very isolated project. And on the flip side... I have been at a lot of conferences where I've had the opportunity to just sit back and shut up and listen to some customers just share the good, the bad, the horror stories, the tips and tricks for getting through to higher levels of support when needed, uh, sharing uh, uh, wins, uh, new rollouts, mobile uh, rollouts, issues with that. And it just seems like the the networked customer that's able to put their heads together with other customers just has a huge advantage and I don't always see them pursuing it. Is, is, is that something that you're also seeing? Oh, for sure. And I'll bring in a couple of things. The, the he or she who did sat me sideways, I don't know if you remember, John, I reached out to in comments yeah. and he, she set up another bogus temporary uh, email and we did a lot of Q&A through there. The most fascinating of the answers was when I was asking, first I asked what methodology are you using? I presume it's ASAP. And the author came back and said, what do you mean by methodology? I mean, yeah. wow. And when I came back and defined what the methodology was, he, she came back and said, oh we're not using any of it, we're just making it up as we go. <laughs> oh my lord. So like I said, normally clients, the first thing they want to know is we need some methodology. Um, and by the way, one of the greatest sins, as revealed through all my studies into enterprise implementation projects and the like, was the failure to adhere to methodology on the part of systems integrators. Yeah. Right? But, but see, your, your anecdote about that email exchange sort of reinforces my point, though, because I would argue that an active, whether it's Oracle or SAP, I don't care what, some uh, a company that's active in user group meetings uh, webinars and on-site uh, is going to know about methodology because they're going to be bitching about their project uh, yeah, you know while they're you know having a drink at a bar with some other customers well, that's, that's and, the and, magic someone, and someone's going to say why don't you have a methodology or what is your and they're going to say I don't know and they're going to say are you crazy right everyone else at the table is going to be going are you nuts <laughs> right so yeah. to, me, to me that's the other thing and I actually would love to down the road try to do some studies around these factors because I really do think that they're key ingredients in a healthy project, the uh, savvy use of independence and then the active user group involvement. But I think we could probably throw in a third big one around a focus on process versus kind of an IT-centric perspective. And I know you have... Uh, I don't want to say you've chosen that hill to die on before because you're still around and you're alive and well, but you've certainly had your your struggles. And you and I have been at events where we thought we were going to talk about building up functional skill excellence 
and we ended up dealing with a lot of talk around application lifecycle management and very IT-centric approaches to these projects. That's really going to fail, right? Because if business users aren't engaged and if if you don't, so so what is a more process-centric approach like? How's that going to work? Well, let's go back to the the gaming. You know, getting getting odds on what isn't isn't going to happen. The fact of the matter is, the software providers are, for better or worse, they're all technical firms. And I I'm not going to be bashing them here. It's, they are what they are. But consider Oracle, which first and foremost was a database firm. And, and then later added enterprise applications and for which they had to have a services group. Let me tell you, the services group at Oracle has historically been third-class citizens in the pecking order at Oracle. Third-class citizens. As a matter of fact, for most of the, the history of Oracle, the marketing and sales group runs services. Right? Not good. So the whole point of view in the Oracle world is always highly technical. Um, SAP uh, used to talk about business process excellence. Now they're talking about HANA, mobility, uh, a bunch. You know, it's a hardware store. Um, and so we're losing ground, John. We're losing the, the frequency of talking about business process excellence to techie-techie stuff. Um, and, but to your point, where we're not losing is when I deal with user groups like ASUG. Uh, and you you uh, happily joined us uh, one year at ASUG uh, for a full day on the subject of centers of excellence, and you could see the enthusiasm these people have. It, we sold out. Uh, this was created by Brian Dayhill. We sold out many years in a row, um, and got some got some real spirit out of the ASUG people. Now I I don't know if you remember this, John. Well, you know that I've always done a lot of hand polling. So I say in the audience, raise your hand if you're more technical than business. And a lot of hands go up. And raise your hand if you're more business than technical. Well, for the ASUG stuff, it was always more business than technical. And I used to shame audiences by kind of turning to the side and not looking at them and saying, okay, raise your hand if you're a user. And then I'd look out and go, you fools, you didn't bring the people that you should have brought. Yeah. Well, at, at, a, at those ASUG things, there were always super users. Where And so you you knew you were dealing with some pretty sophisticated groups that recognized that whole business equation, and to your point, the, the users. And um, that is one area where I've seen actual evolution, for example, most specifically in the SAP installed base um, that I've happily been a part of, really pleased. Um, but the rest of it is still getting too technified. And here's the... Here's Here's the downside, John. I don't have, I do not have primary research on this because it's almost impossible to get. How many firms have given up on their core enterprise applications and gone into a mode of what we call shadow IT? Do you yeah. want to explore that dark pathway for a while? <laughs> yeah. Why don't Why don't we venture into that <laughs> uh, dreaded area of <laughs> rogue IT? What does that mean? What's happening is, you know, the, we talked about the business and IT dynamic. The, the, the phrase that's been used too many years is business and IT alignment, which I hate because it presumes this should be a partnership, when in point of fact, IT should be at the service of business. For many, many reasons we won't get into here, uh, but I would like to point out the first chapter of my book, 
for people in the SAP installed base is called marital counseling <laughs> because the split gets to be so dramatic between the business people and the IT people that the business people simply wander away and build shadow IT. They do their own systems independent of the core system and simply ignore it and no one knows. So the core system loses credibility, loses relevance, it just turns and that's all. And there's more of that out there than any of the software vendors care to admit. And that, we're going to be seeing more of that instead of less if the vendors don't start promoting business excellence. Anyway, that's my rant. <laughs> the, only, the only problem with the marital analogy is that the way you're talking about it, it sounds more like a 1950s idealized American marriage. <laughs> yeah, Aussie and Harry. Where, 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 where business is uh, the Aussie side, right? Yep. <laughs> <laughs> Poor Harriet is, uh, is IT. I'm not, <laughs> not sure uh, how far we should take that analogy. Well, you know, I tell you, what we've got right now is the honeymooners, and IT is Jackie Gleason saying, To the moon, Alice! Right. For which he'd be right. arrested today. <laughs> yeah, indeed. We could get in a lot of trouble, I think, if we continue down these these lines. But okay. but but the point but the point is well taken as far as that you're you're really arguing business, take a lead lead role with IT, sort of uh, and what's interesting about that to me is um, it, it does put the challenge on IT into it in interesting ways to either either become really a true service to the business which actually makes sense in today's IT lingo to provide uh, services as much as possible that are easily consumed but my thing with IT people is if you want to be more than just subservient to business then come up with uh, business uh, relevant ideas I interviewed a company recently where IT was the one to come up with some really cool ways of personalizing the website experience to increase premium subscriptions and things like that, mm -hmm. uh, I don't think IT has to take that lying down if they can if they can look at some of the unique access to data they have and come to business with more interesting proposals on how to do things. Then that's a whole different situation than what you're describing. I think. Well, actually, I've detected over the last three years when I do public speaking and stuff, and people come up and talk to me one on ones afterwards. A lot of IT people are saying we want to work with them. Tell us what to do. And 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 you know my my instant joke is hire me and here's what I'll do I'll go into your business and go to the people that you believe should be the business process owners and I'll say to them how would you like to have an enormous influence on how things are done around here how would you like to have first dibs on all the best business oh you're not interested I'll, and they they pull me back into the room right there is that but then the second layer to that challenge John is that business people are by and large and again, not across the board, but good 75% utterly incapable of articulating what they need because, as was said by an excellent writer whose name, unfortunately, missed, he said, how can they articulate to you something that they've never seen? Right? And we, we, this became revealed finally when we got business objects in the world of SAP and the business people were saying, I want that but said to IT, you go do it for me. And the IT people said, we need to know what intelligence you want. And the right. answer was kind of, well, whatever you think. <laughs> right. 
right? Um, and so I've spent a lot of my research and writing time, as you follow my blog, teaching business people how to measure business events and business results and the like, because they do not know how. I have, I have business people saying to me all the time, we have too many KPIs. And I say, then you don't know what the K means. Key. <laughs> yeah, right. Right. So you have you have two SAP related books that are still widely read. The blue book around implementation and the green book really around post go live excellence or uh, landing on the good side of the conversation we're having today. If you were to write another book about enterprise software, I'm not committing you to doing it or anything, but if you were to write one more, what, what would that book be about? I've actually outlined a book that I haven't had the energy to write, and it would be called, um, uh, what was it, something like um, The SAP End User Handbook, but the most important part is the subtitle. It says, Empowering SAP Users to Improve Their Competency, Get Them More Respect, and Probably More Money, yeah. right? Because... Uh, the, the value chain, as you've seen me express it, is that uh, I, I do my hand polling and I say to the audience, raise your hand if you're a manager, a director, or a supervisor. And almost all of them raise their hands. That's what I get in the audience. And I say, keep your hand up if you think you're the one who drives business process. And surprisingly, they keep their hands up. And I have to say, sorry, you can all put your hands down now because you are not the drivers. You are the people who manage, who direct, and who supervise, the real drivers, and those you call them end users, right? But these are the people who use a mouse, a keyboard, a telephone, or whatever, to complete the tasks which collectively are the business processes. They are the drivers, right? And uh, a, lot of, a lot of business people get the point. Um, and then I say, but of course, you don't support your drivers. And then the... The wonderful Harold Hambro's phrase of there are only two industries in the world that refer to their ultimate clients as users, and one of those industries is illegal. Right. <laughs> At least in most states. In most uh, <laughs> yeah, you're right. Yeah. We have to update that. So, yeah, you start updating with the list of the states <laughs> where it still applies. <laughs> but uh, yeah, you know, that's really interesting. The I just wrote a forward to the Michael Management Training Survey, which he's uh, Thomas Michael and his team have been putting out for the last three years, and the uh, it'll come out like by the, probably next week. But actually, I think it's live today. Uh, so anyway, check it out. But the one of the alarming numbers in there of the those surveyed is that uh, around 41% said that they considered that they didn't have enough training in SAP areas to actually perform their jobs properly as uh, 41% surveyed and around that exact same number had not received any training in the last calendar year so send me whatever you, you can of that I'd love to, I'd love to yeah. lose it. yeah I'll send that along to you but but anyhow that's that's kind of where where that's at it kind of shows you just just to contrast your view of sort of empowered users driving process then you have people who say they haven't gotten any training and they really desperately need it though I, I will say that I think the thing that I'm most encouraged by is when I talk to SAP or even non-SAP 
professionals, but pretty much anyone connected to the enterprise right now is the really good ones have realized that they're just not going to wait anymore for their companies to provide them with educational uh, enlightenment. I mean, if, if they get that from their employers, great. But if not, they're doing it on their own. They're doing online training. They're, they're participating in events. They're speaking. They're blogging. They, they've kind of committed themselves to their own continuous excellence. And to me, that is the most exciting trend that I see because I can't help but think that the overall quality of projects goes up when people take it upon themselves, even though you could make the argument, yeah, I hope customers do more. But in the meantime, it, it really pays off when you get off your own butt as well. <laughs> so Right, and that, that that's one of the heartening things around doing these super user networks. Uh, you, remember, you remember the case study I did with Julie Stokes of ASUG where we did a, an assessment comp comparable to the maturity assessment only around her end users. And we found that things were pretty good, actually. She has 4,500 users worldwide in 35 countries, but over the 10 years since they'd instituted it, her, her super user network had collapsed. So we put one back together in a way that makes it sustainable. Go to michaeldone.com, find the white paper, dri drivers at work, you'll get it. And what was so much fun was a year later, we compared their general self-assessments across the, the first group was the financials people, 566 financials people. And to see the differences between those that since had super users and those that didn't were, were startlingly different. But most especially those that had super users, their morale soared. Right. Right? And as, as, as Carrie Brown of SAP once sort of famously said, she said, look, no one crosses the parking lot in the morning to go into work thinking, wow, I plan on doing a really lousy job, <laughs> right? But hundreds of thousands every day, maybe even millions, are crossing the parking lot thinking, I'm scared. I don't know what I'm doing. They're going to catch me out. I'm going to lose my job. Yep. And that's low morale. People who are like that you know, will avoid the system, which turns into you know, runarounds and workarounds, and we know workarounds come around. Um, whereas, so, so anyway, the, the rise in the morale, and it was, I know that, that, that even the end users were saying, because I've got a super user, I'm more empowered to help those around me. And 21% for both the super user groups and the end user groups said, our business people have detected improvement in our overall business results as a result of better system use. That's what we're here for. That's one of the most heartwarming statistics I've seen in the last five years. Yeah, I think that's probably a fairly good note to wrap our discussion on, Michael. Uh, do, you got a, do you got a parting shot, or are we good to go? Uh, it's business. It's about business. It's about business. Write that down on a little sticker. Put that on your laptop. The subject is business. If I had a mark, if I had a marker, I would add it to our whiteboard. Sorry. <laughs> but I set the marker aside for our... Hopefully it'll be memorable enough. Uh, Mike, thanks for joining us. That was a great conversation. John, always a pleasure. I like, I like the new format. Thanks, man. Cheers, man.